reflect for a moment on what we've just sung. Precious Saviour, will we really surrender all? Will all of us come in to your kingdom? We've said it. We want it to be true. But oh, how difficult it is. Be with us now. Speak to us powerfully, we pray, through your holy scriptures. And make us fully yours. Amen. Please do take your seats and turn back to that part of the Bible we're reading at the moment, which is the letter to the Hebrews, as it's called. Uh, page 1204 in the church Bible. Page 1204. If you don't know me, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. And it's a joy to be with you today. It's been a wonderful service thus far. Received a phone call on Wednesday morning this week from a young lady. Uh, and she said, have you heard about the students in Nottingham? It was my daughter who was at Nottingham University. And no, I hadn't seen the news. And so she told me about a young couple of students, Barnaby and Grace, who were 19 years old, just coming to the end of their first year there at the uni, uh, just as my daughter is. End of the first year, I think one was due to go home the next day, went out for the evening, and walking home at night, just as my daughter does, to their halls of residence, which was the same place that my daughter lived this year, only now my daughter was away on holiday and they were dead. Uh, one of those just horrific, tragic things that just comes out of nowhere some, sometimes. And this guy had stolen a van and killed the, the owner and then drove, dr driven and just apparently randomly stabbed these two young people to death. And of course my first thought was it could have been her, it could have been my daughter, and I felt genuinely sad. But when I saw the BBC News, the website, I was actually shaken because of the photos, because it really looked like her as well. And there was a point during that call when I said, darling, this probably isn't a good time for it, but let me say, this is why we warn you. This is why we warn you about walking home on your own. This is why we warn you about going out late and getting back. And this is why we offer to pay for taxis. Now, this is not at all to say that those two young people in that situation were irresponsible. They couldn't have predicted what could have happened in any sense. They were just walking home. But you understand a father's fear for a young daughter because of the dreadful things that just might happen. And you know that warnings... Sometimes may be severe, but sometimes love requires them. Now, the point we reach today here in the letter to the Hebrews is such a moment. It features one of the most severe warnings in the whole New Testament. We need to let this text speak to us with the authority that God intended. So let me say, this isn't going to be a sermon that's full of laughs. But this writer is also a father in the faith. He's a wise and loving pastor. So he immediately follows the warning with a very beautiful piece of assurance and a kindly encouragement to keep on keeping on. There are three movements in this passage. I've, I've given them three headings. They're very blunt. I think that reflects the text. Firstly, grow up. 
Secondly, watch out. Thirdly, press on. Grow up. Watch out. Press on. Grow up. Verse, chapter 5, verse 11 is where we start. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. A number of years ago, I took a postgraduate certificate in education, a PGCE, and my specialism was English with a, a subsidiary thing of religious education. And I was teaching, uh, the middle term of the course, which is a one-year course, was all spent in a school, and the school that they allocated me to was um, a school in Nottingham, which had, uh, half the students were from the roughest council estate in Nottingham. And I was um, about 21, 22 years old, and I was, I was like a lamb to the slaughter going into that school. I mean, I actually looked like a sixth former. Remember, a student came up to me and um, said, Sir, are you actually a sixth former? This <laughs> is so embarrassing. And I, I, I remember te- trying to teach one class who were year seven students who were notorious throughout the entire school because they were so uncontrollable. And in fact, I discovered that the senior teacher who, who had let me into this class and then he disappeared was actually relieved because he got Friday afternoon off. And I was there, just, just like a lamb to the slaughter, and all sorts of wild stuff happened in that class. Friday afternoon was the worst, because no one actually wanted to learn anything. Now, verse 11 is very robust, and he's actually talking about that kind of situation. You just didn't want to learn. He's very direct, isn't he? He must know them well. He knows them well enough to make a very piercing analysis of their spiritual situation. And he knows them well enough to speak very directly, as only a father in the faith can. Our translation says you no longer try to understand. The the original language literally says you have become sluggish of hearing or dull of hearing. She's been talking about Jesus in this very profound and rich way. He's talking about Jesus in his role as the great high priest. Started thinking about it last week. Jesus is a great high priest who's, who is beset with weakness but without sin. Jesus is one who fully identifies with us. And he's going into this topic. And in verse 10 he says, he, Jesus was a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And most people go, who he? <laughs> Who's Melchizedek? Um, and he's, he's not the, everyone's favorite Bible character. There aren't many, you know, cr- religious Christian cards with a picture of Melchizedek on them. He's not your favorite memory verse, probably. But it is actually very profound. But before he, he, he can get into that, he interrupts himself and he says, hang on a minute. I've got a lot to say about this, guys. But I don't know how I can make it clear to you. Because your capacity to take things in has become sluggish. Not interested, can't be bothered. Now, that might sound a little bit rude, but what he's really saying is, I'm worried about you. I'm worried about you. It's not that you, these people who got the letter, lack the intelligence. It's that they lack the appetite to grow and learn. The real issue is they can't be bothered, become lazy. They could be striving to grow and learn, but they're content to stay in the infant 
section of the swimming pool. You know that a lot of pools have that little bit with the young kids go in? But at some point, you could have got out and learned to swim. It was a useful skill with the adults, but they wanted to stay in the kids' pool. Verse 12 makes this painfully clear. Have a look at that. We do not want... Oh, sorry, where am I? Verse 12. Um, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. He says, given the stage of the Christian life that you're at, guys, you ought to be teachers by now. You ought to be teaching the Bible. Now, the Christian church, actually, one way of looking at it is it's a teaching organization. Its job is to make disciples, and a disciple is a lifelong learner. Therefore, King's Church's primary job is to teach the Bible. It's not the only job. We exist to invite all people into an ever-growing relationship with King Jesus. That means teach them. And that means that many, many of us will be involved in teaching the Word. And many of you are. There are dozens of people in our congregation who are involved in teaching the Word and passing on the Word one way or another during the week. And one of the downsides of a church like ours, which values the public ministry of the word, which is what I do most, most weeks, is that you can kind of elevate that to such a high level that you denigrate the absolutely vital job of teaching that much of the congregation is doing. And actually, most of the teaching in our church is not done by me and Steve, is it? Most of it is done by the members. So many of us will be involved in teaching the word according to the gifts that God has given you. Not everyone can. Not everyone is able to. But if you can, according to your gifts, you could be a teacher. So it's a very sharp comment here, isn't it? To say, you could be a teacher by now, but you need to be taught, what does he say? The elementary truths again. That is the ABCs. The ABCs of the Christian life. I remember teaching our kids. I remember our kids learning to read the ABCs, we've been through this five times, it is quite painful at the time. Going through these books, most of the words in the book are three letters long. Ben and the Bug, oh man, that book is terrible. But as parents, we love teaching the ABCs because you know that it opens a door to a whole world of learning and understanding and reading. So you will sit and, and listen to a young child stumbling through a very dull book because you know how valuable this precious gift of reading is. Now, my oldest son is 22, and he's just finished three years of intensive study at the Bartlett School of Architecture, UCL. He and all his stuff has just moved back into our house. Three years in the same room, and his stuff has multiplied. And now it's all back. Somehow, my wife has crammed it into the house. Nearly had a nervous breakdown as a result. And he's back. And now he has to go and work in an architecture practice for a couple of years. Three years of intense study at the finest architecture school in the world. Imagine that during that time, he had forgotten how to read. And, we, and he asked us to teach him the ABCs again. Exactly. You, that's how I would feel. 
He's right. It wouldn't feel fun the second time around. The writer uses the image of food. He says, you know, you should be eating solid food by now, but you're acting like a baby. You just want to live on milk. It's gone quiet now. Maybe it's been given some milk. We all know that young babies and infants can't eat solid food for the first part of their lives. They start off on a very thin milk, or maybe formula, and over time you're gradually introduced to solid food by having stuff that is mashed up into a soft, manageable, kind of mushy, liquidy form. I remember feeding one of our kids courgettes, and the only way you would receive them was if they were mashed up into a paste and they're mixed with pink yogurt. Oh, one of the few times in life where I haven't finished a kid's dinner. You know, it's a phase of life. It has its own charm. But the point of it is to train the child to get used to solid food so they can grow up. If you met an adult today after the service, I hope you'd try and meet new people. If you met an adult and while you were talking to them, they revealed that they lived on milk and baby fruit pouches, you would think... There's something going wrong here. And that's what the writer warns about in verses 13 and 14. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And here he mixes up the image of food with our handling of God's word, the Bible. Uh, Anyone who lives on milk, just being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. That's talking about God's word. They're not deeply acquainted with God's word, and they don't know how to use it in their own lives and in the lives of others. Now, I want to say here, this is not about a certain kind of education. We are a wonderfully diverse church. I love this. My church in Manchester, although we met in a very rough area, was actually a church that had come out of the university world. And you could not throw a donut across the cafe in the morning before the service without hitting one person who had a PhD. Overeducated. Couldn't get a plumber for the life of you. We're not like that, praise God. It is not about a certain kind of education. It's not about being a certain kind of bookish person. person who just loves browsing calf-bound folios. Oh, love the smell of old books. Oh, yes. It's not about being that kind of person. I feel I need to say that here because most of us are not that kind of person. And you might feel or you might fear that you can't really handle the Bible like this. Bear in mind that the majority of people who first received this letter were illiterate. They couldn't read. All right, you can. Their learning was through hearing the Bible read and internalizing it by hearing it and talking about it. Almost no one in the early church would have completed what we regard as high school. And the idea of university and carrying on into your 20s would be like another planet. The Christian church has been carried by ordinary people for 2,000 years. He is talking to you. Don't live on milk. Get into the solid food, which means grow up. And then he gives us a a quick run-through of the ABCs at the beginning of chapter 6. 
These, he says, are the introductory teachings. He says, let us move on. There it is in chapter 6, verse 1. Let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And you're thinking, oh my days, if that's the elementary stuff, I'm not sure I know what half of it means. Actually, I think most of you do. These introductory teachings are the entry-level teachings of the Christian faith. I can, you could look at them in three pairs. The first one is repentance and faith. Um, this is about how you become a Christian in the first place. Repentance is uh, the turning around, the turn, changing of the mind, the turning around of the whole life from looking towards self and self-fulfillment to looking towards God and walking and serving him. That is repentance, that turning around. And faith in God, putting your trust in God, your reliance on him day by day. There's a repentance and faith. Now you might be at this stage of the journey here. It is delightful that you're here. We're so happy to have you with us. Keep going. The second thing he mentions is cleansing rites and laying on of hands. It's most likely a reference to baptism and entrance into the church. Baptism, we have two, two signs, two uh, ordinances that Jesus gave us. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the entry one. Lord's Supper is the continuation one. And we teach about the meaning of baptism on our membership course here. We'll be doing that in the autumn if you'd like to sign up. Laying on of hands was a symbolic gesture indicating that a person received the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we do it when we appoint an elder to a position in the church that requires filling of the Spirit. It's a symbolic way. We're laying on of hands. They used to do it in the Old Testament for someone being given a particular position. And the early church would do it for a new Christian. Receive the Holy Spirit. The hands don't do anything, but it's a symbolic gesture. Coming into the family. And then thirdly, he mentions resurrection of the dead and final judgment. This is the Christian understanding that at death is not the end. Jesus Christ will return to judge the world justly. He will raise all his people from the dead, literally and bodily, and they, we will spend eternity with him in a new creation, a physical world. Resurrection. The whole world will be put to rights. Judgment. These are core doctrines. They're elementary. Every Christian should know them. We're teaching uh, two courses on Wednesday night here at the church. We have a women's course and a, a, a broader course called Almost Too Good to Be True. This week, one of the course members, who is always asking brilliant questions, said, can you just explain about resurrection and the future? and How, do, how does that fit with heaven? Brilliant. This is what we should be teaching. Every Christian should know them. But what our writer is saying is, don't just stop there. Don't just drink milk. So how does this apply to you and me? It would be a helpful moment, wouldn't it, for us all to take a, a, a time to reflect what stage am I at in the Christian life? A toddler um, doesn't help with the dishes. A toddler doesn't clean their own room or prepare food, or put away their clothes. All these things need to be done for them. Toddlers are 100% takers, and that's how it should be. But if you were still acting like that at the age of 40, something's gone wrong. <laughs> There's a few people laughing there. I hope, hope it's not 
your child. Anyway, it's the same thing with spiritual health and growth. Where, where are you, friends, in the journey of the Christian life? I'm talking to a big room here. I don't, I'm not having a go at anyone, right? I'm just literally asking what I think the text expects us to ask. Uh, if you are a Christian baby, you're very new, newborn. You should be 100% receiving now. Just receiving. That's, that's exactly right. If you are a young infant, a young Christian, you could be taking your first steps now, but you still need lots of help and support and teaching. Don't try and run. You might be a teenager in the faith. I don't mean a te- literal teenager. I mean someone who's been a Christian for a while, but it's still quite early days. You can take more on. You can serve alongside other more mature believers. But you do need to have the humility to respect older saints. But what if you are an adult in the faith? You've been a Christian for a while. You're established. I remember a f- friend of mine is a senior pastor of a church in Liverpool saying to me, I realized something about our church when, when a lot of men who were in their 60s were acting like they were in their 30s. He said, I realize we all need to start acting our age spiritually. So the, the older men, the fathers of the church, really should be acting like fathers of the church. And the older women really should be acting like the mothers of the church. We, we need you to do that. And this is serious because in this passage, this picture that he paints of infants is that they don't listen, they're forgetful, they're unskilled, and they're undiscerning, and therefore they are vulnerable. And it's the same in the Christian life. If you are not growing up, maturing in your faith, you are actually more susceptible to being deceived by things or to, to falling into bad habits or spiritual unhealth. We need grown-up Christianity. It means people who have learned how to tell right from wrong. Just as a child learns to discern between some things are good and some things are bad, Christians need to grow up to maturity to discover the difference between what is appropriate behavior and what is inappropriate behavior. Are you maturing, friends? There's a number of young people in our church, young adults, teenagers, who think it's pretty funny and pretty cool to go out and drink too much alcohol. You just need to grow up. It's not appropriate behavior. We met a woman in my first year of ministry in in the north, young woman, student, came from a really solid Christian family. And... uh, she went to university and she just kind of left it behind. She got into a partying scene. She started drinking a lot. She really liked this, this uh, handsome sportsman. He was the captain of one of the sports teams. And uh, one night they were all at a party and she, she and he were talking and she, they were drinking. Next thing she knew, she woke up in a strange bed and uh, let's call him Johnny. Had, uh, had sex with her while she was blind drunk. That was her virginity gone. It hurt. She couldn't remember it. He had no interest in her anymore. He was one off making conquests. He'd also left her with a sexually transmitted disease. She had to go to the doctors. She had to go through all that. She 
came back to church. She, she was restored. She was renewed. But oh boy, was that mature behavior? And did she regret it for the rest of her life? We just need to learn mature conduct. Are we growing up? If you look back at yourself three years ago, how have you grown? Can you see God at work in you? Can, can other people who know you well see God at work in you? Are you moving closer to him? Are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you growing in those ways? These are the ways that really count. Are you learning to serve people around you? Could you be teaching those who are younger in the faith? Now, in this church, we have a golden opportunity to do that in our children and youth work. And here's the thing. When you teach others, you really grow yourself. You have to grow up when you teach others. And I think it's really the best way to grow. I know I would be nowhere as a Christian if I didn't have to drag myself to study the Bible every week so I have something to say on Sunday morning. I need it. I need to, to serve. Serving a children youth work. If you could do that, and you remember you don't have to be highly educated, blah, blah, blah. We would love to talk to you about that. And let me say too that Sunday morning, just coming on Sunday morning is, is enough to sustain you, but Sunday morning alone won't cut it. It's just not enough for you to really grow, bluntly. Sunday morning is kind of enough to, to keep going, but not to grow. You need more. This is why we offer foundations. Sunday evening, we, we offer a deeper dive into the doctrines of the faith than we can do on Sunday morning. This year, we've been thinking about the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. Now we're thinking about the doctrines of grace. And I've been fascinated to see the people in King's Church who come to foundations because they are people who really want to grow. One young man commented to the leader last week, every week I feel like my mind is being completely blown and stretched. But he is growing. Now, don't hear the old tape, okay? I'm not playing the old tape. You should be at church, every church meeting, or we'll make you feel guilty. We've got bad form with that as a church in the past. I don't believe it. You don't have to be at every church meeting. You can't be. The bigger we get, you just simply couldn't be here every time the doors are open. But you should be committed to grow. And you know, there's a dark side to this failure to grow, and that's why he writes this serious warning here. Watch out. Second point. First one was grow up. Second point is watch out. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the coming age, who have, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance... He's saying here, it's solemn warning. If you've learned the ABC thoroughly and started off well on the Christian path, you can't expect to be restored if you just jack it all in and go off in a different direction. Like a child who learned the ABCs but totally refused to read, write, or even speak intelligibly, the teacher would come to suspect that nothing is ever going in here or at least that it's not doing any good. And that is the picture that we have here. Now look, this is a very challenging passage. It's notorious. Uh, 
Who are these people? They look like true Christians. He says they were once enlightened. It means they received some knowledge of God's truth and they came to understand some of it. It's a bit like Jesus taught the parable of the soils. You know, the farmer goes sowing the seed all around, scattering it, and there's different kinds of soil and some of the seed falls on a hard path and the birds come and peck it away. But some of the seed falls onto like shallow soil and it actually grows up for a bit. And it's, it's alive. It looks like it's alive. But then hard times come and the sun beats and it off it goes. And then some others, the soil goes in a bit deeper, but it's sown among thorns, weeds. So when it grows up, it grows up alongside the weeds and all twisted together. So when it comes to it, they're choked. The life is choked. Only the fourth soil actually is the one that bears good fruit. It goes deep and produces a crop. You can be enlightened, show some life, and then die. It says they tasted the heavenly gift. They began to experience the new kind of life, the love of God which comes to us through Jesus and is shown through his people. They had a share in the Holy Spirit. You can share in what the Spirit is doing in a church by being part of its life. You experience what God is doing in his people by being among us. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. You know, they read the Bible and it started to speak. It seemed to come alive. They tasted the powers of the coming age. The message of Jesus is future focused. There's a world coming when everything will be put to rights. We're looking forward to that. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' family, is already started in this world. It is inaugurated. But it hasn't come fully. It is inaugurated but not consummated. But it's breaking into our world. Wherever there's a church, a true church based around God's word, God's kingdom is breaking into the hard ground and spreading into the world. And we may be just in the days of the early church. And there are more than two billion people in this world professing the name of Jesus. We're waiting for it to come. And so in light of all those five things that these people have experienced, the sixth thing is really shocking, isn't it? And have fallen away. What? The warning is that some people can experience all of those things and yet still fall from it. And the warning here is that it is impossible to bring them back to repentance. Now, what is this falling away? It is not mere sin. We all sin many times. We all fail many times. 1 John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin is part of the, the daily experience of believers, not just to accept it and be, be uh, compromised about it, but falling away is not just sinning. Falling away also is not doubting. One of the most wonderful moments in, in Mark's gospel is when a man cries out, I believe, help now my unbelief. I feel like that's my, that's my experience, don't you? I believe, help my unbelief. I'm, I'm conflicted, I've got doubts. You've got, you've got doubts, I know you have. Don't pretend otherwise. It's part of our condition. Falling away is not even going through a rough patch. We all have times where we go through a patch. We, 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 we really mess up or we become cold. This is not what he's talking about here. He means a wholehearted renouncing of the faith. A wholehearted renouncing of the faith. Why do I think this? Because of verses 6 and 7. Who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, 
They are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. This person is trampling Jesus Christ underfoot, renouncing everything they once believed, and they're even publicly joining in the contempt that people have for the Christian faith. And he says they're like land that only produces thorns and thistles. So the echo of Genesis, where the curse on land for Adam was that it would only produce, it would produce thorns and thistles, useless crops. And he says, eventually a farmer, after trying to sow seed and water that land for a while, is going to say, it's only good for burning. And be rejected. And it is shocking that the writer could say this, isn't it? But if you have been around a Christian church for a while, you know what he's talking about. You've seen it. It is a tragedy, but many of us know people just like this. They looked like they were true lovers of the light. They looked like they loved Jesus Christ. They looked like they were experiencing the new birth and growing. And yet they fell away, and at the end they were worse off than they were at the beginning. And that raises an important theological question, which is this. Can a person receive salvation and then lose it? And in the context of the whole New Testament, the answer to that question is a very clear no. The Apostle Paul makes that abundantly clear in the book of Romans, chapter 5 to 8, if you want to look that up. But that's not what Hebrews is talking about here. We shouldn't try and press this writer to answer questions that he's not discussing. He's warning that people can experience all these things and still fall away and be worse at the end than they were at the beginning. So this is a very serious warning to, for every one of us to hear. Please, please don't be in the position of sitting here today and thinking, I wish so-and-so was here because they really need to hear this. It's written for you. And it's written for me. And if I'm really honest, I'm tempted to think I'm okay. But then, I can see in my mind's eye one of the most able pastors of my generation. He was really gifted. He was an extraordinary leader, very dynamic. He led one of the fastest growing churches in the Northwest. He saw people become Christians. He saw many people grow. His church not only flourished, but it planted others and revitalized others. And now he has fallen away. Now, if it could happen to him, it could certainly happen to me. What is the antidote for us? How will we escape being like that land? Now, part of the answer has already been given. It's to grow up, to keep pressing, moving beyond the ABCs to develop in our understanding. But as we finish, finally and briefly, the second part of the answer is given. It is to keep on keeping on, no matter what. Press on. Verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. 
There's the forward focus. You've probably heard of Sir Francis Drake. He was a legendary Englishman. He became famous during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. Drake sailed around the world in a wooden boat. He crossed the Atlantic many times. He was involved in many sea battles. He defeated the Spanish Armada when it attacked this country in 1588. He was a member of Parliament twice. He was a great man. You may know some other stories. That he spread his cloak over a muddy puddle in front of the Queen so that her, she could walk across without her feet getting dirty. That when the Armada was in sight, Francis Drake insisted on finishing his game of bowls. He also tried to claim California as a British possession. What a shame that he didn't succeed. <laughs> Think of the holidays we could have had. But Francis, Sir Francis Drake also wrote a prayer, maybe the secret of some of his success, and it's still in, in use by some churches today, and here it is, I've put it in modern English. Oh Lord God, when you give to your servants to endeavor any great matter, grant us to know that it's not the beginning, but the continuing of the same, until it be thoroughly finished, which yields the true glory. Through him, who for the finishing of your work laid down his life for us, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. What matters isn't so much the beginning, but the continuing, carrying on until the thing is thoroughly finished. And maybe you recognize the challenge. DIY projects. Trying to lose weight. Doing a course. Learning the piano, learning a language, reading a book. <laughs> there are so many things we, don't, we start and we don't finish. In fact, I think all of them apply. That was completely autobiographical. There's several phases, aren't there? There's an initial burst of enthusiasm. It's new, it's exciting. Then there's a gradual draining of energy as we realize, oh dear, it's not done yet and it's hard to carry on. And then there's that longer period which goes on for months, maybe even years, when we get out of bed without enthusiasm, lacking the desire to finish the project, wishing we could have something new to excite us, but realizing that there is a goal ahead which will make it all worthwhile if we can just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And the Christian life is often like that. So press on. Let's grow up. Let's watch out and let's press on together. I met a, young, a man, not a young man, a man my age yesterday, who mentioned a book on Hebrews by a gentleman called, scholar called Michael Kruger. And he said, are you going to use this illustration? And I, I didn't know about it. I hadn't read it, but I will use it. Michael, Dr. Kruger says, in 2018, I watched the men's 15 kilometer cross-country skiing in the Winter Olympics. Cross-country skiing over 15K. It is one of the most grueling, painful events of the whole games. And the last man over the line was from Mexico. Not a country that is big in skiing. Was he disappointed to come last? Not at all. He was elated just to finish the race. He carried a flag over the line while the crowd cheers. Some of the competitors lifted him on their shoulders 
to celebrate. And that is the vision in the Christian life. Personally, I'm not thinking about being the winner of the race. I just want to finish. That's the perseverance we are being called to. If some are giving up altogether, then the opposite is not getting a gold medal, it's just finishing. Someday, let us say with Paul, I have finished the race. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. But as I thought about that illustration, actually the more inspiring thing to me was the guy who told me about it. I've known him nearly 40 years. I knew him when he was a teenager. I knew his wife before they were married. I've seen them grow in their faith year by year. I've seen them look after two sons, one of whom needs care 24-7. And how they've poured out their lives and love him. And I never heard them complain. Now that's inspiring. And that's ordinary people who, through faith and patience, will inherit what has been promised. May we be like them. Let's pray. O oh Lord, when you give to your servants to endeavor any great matter, grant us also to know that it's not the beginning but the continuing of the same until it be thoroughly finished which yields the true glory. We pray this through him who for the finishing of your work laid down his life for us. Our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.